Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is March the 28th, 2018. This is episode 2191 of the Survival Podcast. It's a Wednesday. That's supposed to be interview day, but we've punted our interviews until I get rid of my interview gremlin electronic problems. So we have another Just Jack show today. A lot of you guys tell me the Just Jack shows are your favorite. So, you know, maybe for those folks, that group of the audience, you get a bonus week this week. Yesterday we talked about cooking. Long show, monster show on cooking hacks and uh, what I call cooking cheat codes. But uh, today we're going to talk about something that's similar to cooking. If you can cook, you can do what we're going to talk about today, even though people think it's mysterious and hard and complicated. It requires specialized equipment. It doesn't. It's going to be mead making, specifically small batch mead making, something I really uh, introduced heavily to this audience in 2015. And we've talked about it here and there over the years, but it's been three years, and we've not really done a deep dive into it again. And the first time I brought out this method, uh, which I originally learned and then adapted to my own ends from Michael Jordan, and I put this out, like, we, we created kind of like a little firestorm of, of mead making, and uh, it, was, it was kind of interesting because it was like, you could tell the impact, because I was like, you know, I, I have this three flowers blend that I'll tell you about today, and I get my, my herbs for that from Mountain Rose Herbs, and then... Uh, I, you know, there's yeah, any kind of herbal mead you want to make. That's a methylogen. You can, Mountain Rose Herbs has all these awesome herbs to go check through. And all of a sudden on the mead podcast, I started hearing people talking about Mountain Rose Herbs, Mountain Rose Herbs. Like every single podcast within like a month was on about Mountain Rose Herbs, but there was no, there's no credit back to us. And I don't think it was like lifting our content. I just think that like that got out into the mead community. And once it did, it got back to the people making content for the mead community. They checked it out and they loved it. So we had an impact. And I like to have an impact. I like to put out something and have a person listen to it that never did it before and say, and then have them go, you know what? I can do that. Jack made that where that doesn't seem scary. Jack made that where it doesn't seem really risky. Jack, Jack, Jack seemed to like point out some things that like, that might be good about this. I can do that. I'm going to try that. And then they try it and they say, look, I did it and it worked. That's awesome. That's what I think the real world of podcasting is all about. That's what I think we do that conventional media cannot do. We can get on here one day and talk about politics, the next day and talk about business, and the next day about making booze. And even in all three of those, we can give you something you can do and you can go do it, and we don't have to appeal to the lowest common denominator like the networks do. And I think that's what makes podcasting fun. Anyway, before we get into that today, let's go ahead and hear from the two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today, BulkAmmo.com, the company that can help you keep your gun a gun instead of an overpriced club. That's right, no ammo for your gun means your gun is a barter implement, a pawn shop item, or an overpriced club. Ammo in the gun makes the gun do what the gun is designed to do, fire. And that could be to protect yourself and your family and your friends, or to put food on the table, or to train so when either of those times come up, you're prepared and ready to do it. And the thing about BulkAmmo.com is you know what happens when you order from BulkAmmo.com. It seems like you click Submit Order, Order Received. There's the postman with your order at the door. It's, it's not that fast, but it seems that fast. 
Check them out today, BulkAmmo.com. Remember, they do have a discount for members of the MSB. You can find that in the benefits section of your member support brigade. Next up today, JM Bullion, the other precious metal. Actually, the precious metal, gold and silver. The reason I say the other one is because copper-jacketed lead from bulk ammo, pretty pretty good precious metal to store up on, too. But I have been recommending, since I started this show all the way back in 2008, that you have about 5-10% of your total net wealth invested in precious metals. And the reason is they are a wealth assurance program. There has never been a time where gold and silver have been worthless, and they have a history of being used as money for about as long as humanity has had money. That's a place where you can kind of lay, you know, lay a rest up of, of a store of value that you know will always be there. It's also still to this day the most anonymous form of wealth there is, even more anonymous than cryptocurrency. And when you want to hand down your wealth to your heirs and to your family and what have you over the years, it can be between you, them, and the fence post. It's one of the many things that I love about silver and gold. And when I'm going to buy silver and gold, which I do frequently, I go to JM Bullion. The reason? Best customer service, best pricing, same silver, same gold. I mean, it's that simple. And you're buying in quantities of more than 300 bucks. Not only is your shipping free on all your orders, but in quantities over 300 bucks, you get a discount on silver and gold with the MSB. I mean, who gets a discount on silver and gold? No one. We do. We get that discount for you with our partnership with JM Bullion. Check them out today at jmbullion.com. Check out their shipwreck silver. That's a really cool thing to put into a kid's hand and tell them a story about where it came from. Next up, let's take a look at the year in history. We're up to the year 115 A.D. this year. We're still in Rome. The invasion of the Parthian Empire, contributed by David Verne. During the winter, Antioch, the provincial capital of Syria, was hit by a massive earthquake. Reconstruction efforts delayed Trajan, but he managed to get back to the front by spring. He led six legions into the Parthian territory and faced little resistance. Past Roman invasions has all, had always ended badly. But this time, the Parthian Empire was weakened by civil war and political struggle. The legions were able to conquer vast swaths of Parthian territory quickly. Trajan armies sailed down the Tigris River and captured the Parthian capital of Siphiston. The legions wintered before traveling to the Persian Gulf next year. My take by David Verne, this was the greatest expansion of Roman territory in the quickest time. In less than a year, Trajan conquered most of the modern-day Iraq. The swiftness of the conquest concealed how shallow the victory was. Resistance would soon break out across the conquered land. And a second Jewish war broke out, seriously disrupting supply lines. This is the history repeats. It doesn't always repeat, but it always rhymes type of thing. In, in, in throughout history, large empires, powerful military forces, have never really had a hard time taking territory. It's holding it. That is the problem. And it's one of the things that made the Roman Empire very successful is they were very good at holding territory because when they came in and they took territories, they were pretty good about allowing some self-government, some self-rule, and bringing some level of advantage with their occupation. Not for everybody, but for somebody, for most somebodies in some ways. And over time, taking that conquered territory and actually, you know, maybe you're not going to be, but your, your kids or your grandkids might be citizens of Rome and have the benefits that came with being a citizen of Rome, which in 115 A.D. was a lot different than it would be seen as today. I'm not saying it's good, bad, or indifferent. I'm saying this is why it worked. And I think this is why as the empire stretched further out and the cultural differences grew more vast, the strategy didn't work quite as well. 
And you end up with you know what has always been the case. How hard was it for the U.S. to take Afghanistan? To take the territory from the people in charge? We did it in a few months. How long ago? Well, folks, that was a long time ago. George Bush was president. Since then, we've had two terms of Barack Obama, and we're in our second year of Donald Trump. And how's it working out? Do we have complete control of Afghanistan, or are we shedding blood still to hold it? This is the lesson of history that we need to learn that no one ever wants to talk about. It's not about winning the war. It's about what is, what is the reward or what is the loss of winning the war. You can't really tell me that we're getting a lot out of still having our men die in Afghanistan. You can tell me, but I wouldn't believe you. As I said, history doesn't always repeat itself, but it often rhymes. With that, let me remind you real quick, if you want to uh, support the show, the easiest way to do that is to join the Member Support Brigade. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. And that's all I'll say about that today so I can get into the show right away. So, again, I want to talk to you about small batch mead making. Now, when I first brought this to you, I brought it to you as small batch uh, mead, cider, and wine. And it does all of those things. And I would say in order of what it does best, number one is mead, number two is wine, number three is cider. We start with cider a lot of times for people, which is really kind of apple wine. And we start with that because it's easy, and you get a bottle that you can then use as a fermenter, as, as many of you know from, from hearing about this before. Because a one-gallon bottle of apple juice, we pour a little bit out to make some headroom. We make some cider out of it. We clean that bottle out after we're done, and now we've got a fermenter that we can make the other stuff in. The thing is that cider really is one of those things, because it is a rather quick thing in, in normal circumstances, It, it, it does make sense to go with the five-gallon batch like most beer makers do. In fact, it's what I do. Um, and then the other thing about cider is it really does need to be carbonated or it just doesn't taste right, uh, in my opinion anyway. I've never been a fan of still ciders. And if you're going to be carbonating, then you know I'm a big fan of keg systems because then we take a five-gallon keg, we put the five gallons of cider in it, we throw it in the kegerator, we turn the pressure on, We walk away for a week, we come back, we have perfectly carbonated, clear, cold cider. So I, I think cider is, is fine if that's where you want to start. I think wines, especially when we get into fruit wines and stuff like that, there's all kinds of stuff that we can make. But in the end, the place where I don't just think it works really well, but it's so much better than the alternative, is mead. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that, but one is that the, the, the base element we're working with in mead is honey. And maybe it's a good time for those that are maybe new to the subject to even talk about what is mead. Mead is best described as a wine made from honey and water and yeast. And, and it's really not a wine. Mead is its own thing. But that's the best way to describe it to someone who doesn't know what it is. It's fermented honey. We take honey and we, we introduce yeast to it, and we do that in a certain way. And that yeast consumes the sugars in the mead or in the, in the, in the honey, and it, it releases CO2, a gas that off-gasses, some other gases as well, some other things that contribute flavors, but the main thing it does is convert sugar into alcohol as it reproduces, and its population goes way, way up. When it eventually has consumed as much sugar as it's capable of in the environment that it's in, which has a lot to do with a lot of things, some yeast, they'll reach a certain alcohol level, And then the alcohol they've created actually creates a toxic environment and they die. Or they go dormant is actually a better way to put it. So they reach a, a level that they can't go beyond. And if we do that in a, in, in a way where 
let's say that the yeast, if it was strong enough, could have made the alcohol content 18%, but the yeast dies or, or taps out at, let's say, 13%, then that residual sugar contributes to a sweet mead. And if we use a very highly alcohol-tolerant yeast or less honey, or both, and we ferment out almost all the sugar, we get a dry mead. Far more like a good dry Chardonnay uh, than something like a Boone's Farm wine. That's how I feel. I'm jaded. I don't like sweet meads, uh, with a few exceptions. Like a dessert mead that's made to be that way, okay, fine. But I don't like sweet meads. I don't like sweet ciders. I believe that an adult beverage should be attenuated well. That means well fermented out of its residual sugars, but yet retain flavor. Now, since we're using honey, there's few things in the world more sticky and gooey than honey. And since we're doing it by weight, we're going to want to weigh it and we're going to pour it into a container and then we need to dissolve it. In beer, we often use something called malt extract. It is every bit as gooey, if not more so, than honey, but what's the difference? And the difference is when we make beer, we boil the water. When we make beer, we boil the water, and we boil the malt in the water with hops for about an hour to release the acid in the hops so that it will create the bittering counterbalance to the sweetness of the malt. We do not, I'm going to say this again, we do not boil honey. There is actually a type of mead called a brochet, I won't be talking about that today, where we not only boil, but we burn the honey and we caramelize it, and it's, it's, it's good for what it is. But for in general, for me, I don't, I don't want to go there. I want to dissolve the honey in water. Now, so I'm going to just put it to you this way. My method, that I'll explain where it came from here in a minute, but my method involves, as a standard practice, you can use less or more if you want to make variations, but as a standard batch ingredient list, three pounds of honey to the gallon. Okay, five gallons would be 15 pounds of honey. So what do you think is easier to do? Dissolve three pounds of honey in a one-gallon container that you can pick up, put a lid on, and shake with that warm to hot water in it, or stirring five gallons of water with 15 gallons of honey to the point where you get full dissolving of the honey. Which one do you think is easier? And, I mean, it doesn't take a genius uh, <laughs> to figure this out, right? It doesn't take a genius at all. It's obviously easier to get that dissolving done with a gallon bottle. And I think that's one of the reasons this works so well for me because we don't have that issue with wine. We don't have that issue with ciders easy. Cider, the basic cider, we can just dump five gallons of apple juice into a tub and throw yeast in there. Usually we boost our sugar content a bit to get a higher alcohol product, but about two pounds of, of sugar to five gallons, that's easy to dissolve. But when we're looking to dissolve 15 pounds of honey in one shot... It's not undoable. Again, I've done this, just to kind of put this in perspective for you, I've done this for 23 years, and I've been making mead this way for three. So I have 20 years of doing it the way everybody else does it, and the procedures everybody else uses, and three of doing it this way, and I will never go back. Even if I want to make five gallons of something, I will, I will make five one-gallon batches, and, and hopefully that will make sense as we go through Uh, today. Now, again, I want to I want to give credit where credit is due. I, my method evolved out of a method used by Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan came to my place. He made a one gallon batch of meat. He did it in about 20 minutes during a break at lunchtime. It wasn't even planned. He used a miniature coffee maker and a water bottle and a balloon and some yeast he stole out of my refrigerator. And I looked at that and said, "Whoa!" 
And then he gave, and I'm like, well, you know, and I've always liked his meat. I've known him for a few years at this point. And I'm like, do you make all your meat like this? No, I don't make all my meat like that, but I make a lot of my meat like that, especially when it's like, you know, this chocolate meat or whatever. I'm like, really? So, okay. So he left that gallon here. And I set that gallon up on a bookshelf in my office. And I watched that gallon of mead go completely clear in less than 30 days. And I went, ah, that's something. So I racked it off, and I tasted it when I racked it. It was pretty good. And I bottled it, and it was a great mead. And I thought, well, that's easy. That's fast. That's quick. And I started working with and developing my small batch methodology. However, I've changed a lot of things. And over about that, of these three years, it was in that first year that I fully evolved the way that I do this to the point where I would say, this is now my method. And I'm going to tell you before I get started, and I'll explain toward the end, everybody that knows what they're doing making me that hasn't tried my methodology will tell you it's wrong. And I'll explain at the end of the show today why they are right and they are wrong at the same time about that, okay? So I just want you to know, if you are an experienced brewer, vintner, whatever, you're going to hear some things today and you're going to go, no, 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 no. All I can tell you is judge the end product. So let's talk about the basic method of making mead. I want to use a one-gallon fermenter. And everybody's big on glass. I am not, because I'm going to pour hot water in it. And you know what can happen to a glass jug when you pour hot water in it. If you feel the need to use glass one-gallon jugs as your secondary fermenters, God bless you and Godspeed and go do it. But we start with a one-gallon fermenter to make a one-gallon batch. I buy the twin packs of two one-gallons of apple juice at Costco. And I do not drink apple juice like that. I buy those bottles. I buy, you know... Enough of them at a time that I put six bottles, and I dump five of them into a fermenter, and I make a straight batch of plain old apple cider, and I keep it in my kegerator. And that's for friends, family, workshops, events, parties. There's always some cider in there. That gives me five great fermenters. That's one type of fermentation uh, device that you can use, and I really like them. They're clear. You can see through them. They have a screw-on lid. When I use those, I drill a hole in the lid with a step bit. Okay, you can just Google step bit if you want to find one. I uh, go to the site and put step bit in my, in my site. And I have one I've reviewed. It's really an expensive one you can get. Harbor Freight's a good source of them as well if you want to spend it. Because some of the ones they sell, sell at like uh, Home Depot and all, they're like 40 bucks and they're lock and key. You can get a you know, twin or three pack of step bits for like 14 bucks at Harbor Freight. And for drilling plastic, it's fine. I pump, I pop a cork in there, a, a rubber stopper for that size hole, and I put an airlock on it. The other option is you go buy water bottles, and then you get a great clear spring water, one gallon with a small top is the best if you're going to use the water bottle method. You pour some of that out to create some headspace, and when you when you go to put an, an airlock on it, you use a balloon. Or you can use a cork and a uh, or a, a rubber stopper and an airlock. It's up to you. I tend to not use the balloon method. I'll talk about a little later. Not because I don't like it, but because I because I have a reason that I'm buying the one gallon apple juice bottles, and a balloon doesn't stretch well over the mouth of those because it's so big, and the balloon will generally break. And even if you get it done, it will generally break at some point during the process. I have, when I've run out of airlocks, 
You can stretch a balloon right over that little rubber stopper. That saves you having to buy the airlock, but I have plenty of airlocks. And since you have to modify the lid anyway, I have tended to continue to use airlocks. Both, both work. So we take a one-gallon fermenter, and we use three pounds of honey. We use the adjuncts of our choice, and I'll talk about some different ones there, but that could be fruit, it could be herbs, it could be what have you. We use two strains of yeast with my method. This is the, and they are Pastor Blanc, uh, Red Star Pastor Blanc, and Red Star Cuvée. This is another thing that people completely disagree with me about. You do not have to. You can use, you know, Lavlin, I think, is the, the yeast of choice for most mead makers. I prefer what I do. Um, we use, I use Firmax yeast nutrient. This gives the yeast extra nutrients to do their job faster. It's not necessary, but it's cheap and it works really good. Uh, we leave headspace in the fermenter of about 15%. So you do that by eye. But you need enough space that when that fermentation starts, and with the yeast strains that I recommend, it's pretty it's pretty exciting for, for a mead. We don't want to blow the balloon off. We don't want to blow a bunch of material out of the bottle and create a sticky mess. We don't want to do any of that. Uh, so we leave that headspace. We're going to ferment for about 30 to 45 days. That will vary. When I see clear liquid and I don't see any action going on, I know that at that point I can I don't have to, but I can rack at any point. We're, and at that point, we're going to rack. And what rack means is we're simply going to transfer everything that's in the first fermenter into a second fermenter. Now, if you've been listening up till now, you're probably not that opposed to me if you're an experienced mead maker. This is one of the first points where you're, really going to disagree with what I have to say. When I go over to that secondary fermenter, I get as much liquid out of there as I can um, without picking up too much sediment because a lot of stuff will have sedimented out. I use a thing called a racking cane. I have a link in today's show notes, and by the way, it's today's Amazon item of the day. It's made for small batches, so it's not clunky like the big giant ones for five-gallon batches. What I'll do is I take my secondary fermenter, and this is one of the reasons I love small batch. I put the secondary fermenter in the sink. I have a little stool for my grandson to stand on when he's getting stuff. I put that stool up on the, the countertop next to the sink, and I set my primary fermenter up there, and I put my secondary one in the sink, and I put that racking cane with a tube, and I manipulate and pump that racking cane two or three times, and it starts to siphon. I can't spill, because if you spill in the sink, it's not really spilling. This makes cleanup easy, and it keeps your wife from yelling at you. You transfer that over... And I'll tilt it, and since it's only a one-gallon container, it's pretty easy to tilt it and control it. And if I start to see a lot of sediment going up, that's when I call it and say, boom, I'm done. And I'll stop that siphon by lifting up out of it. And then you take the, the end of that hose and put it back inside, so it's doubled over inside the primary fermenter. You can set that aside so you can clean it. That way it doesn't splash all over the place and you don't get in trouble with your wife or your husband, depending on who's making the meat, because plenty of women make meat too. Don't look the wrong way there. All right, so... We get that done, and then I always tend to use filtered water out of my Berkey filter when I do this. You could also use bottled water. You could use tap water. If you are on city water with chlorine, though, I recommend using bottled water for your meat. It's cheap. It's very cheap. It's the cheapest ingredient in there, and it will improve the quality of your meat overall, in my opinion. I This is where you're going to get, I do, you can't do this. Yes, I can. You top that one-gallon secondary to the top with water. 
reestablish an airlock, balloon method, whatever you want to do, and go put it back and let it ferment again for about, you're going to not believe me, but usually a week is long enough. It's only been there 30 days, and I've finished meads through secondary in 30 days. It goes very fast if you use this method. Generally speaking, though, it's about a month and then another week. And it's not always going to finish. And you have to look at it, and you get to where you know when it's done, and you know when it's not done. But when it's dead clear, it's done. You don't get a dead clear mead and it not be done. Especially if there's no more activity on the airlock or what have you. Okay, So once that's done, we then bottle it. And the way that I bottle, I've, I've used tons of methods. I've done the racking cane with the bottling wand. The bottling wand, you know, it's a little plastic tube, and it's got a little pressure thing on the bottom, and you push, push it in the bottle, and it lets the, the mead flow down the siphon, and when it gets to the top, you pull it up, and it stops. And when you pull the wand out, you end up with enough headspace in the bottle to properly bottle. I found a product at Uline, which is a like a bulk packaging type uh, container company. It's a two and a half gallon, they call it a carboy. It's really a jug with a little valve on the bottom of it. And I thought, you know, for increasing the volume of your mead making to two gallon batches, it would make a good fermenter. It makes an okay fermenter. I prefer using the one gallon batches though. However, I bought a few of them to play with and I was sitting there looking at it and said, You know, if I took my secondary, put my racking cane in there, and racked over into that U-line uh, carboy, and set that thing up on that little stool that my grandson has, and don't worry about any tube or bottling wand or anything, just held a bottle up there on an angle so it will go down the side instead of splashing, because we don't want oxygen after fermentation. We don't want that at all. That if we do that, we won't. Well, it'll be easy to bottle. Well, I've, I've given a couple of these away now, and everybody I give one to loves it. And it, it's, it's now a core piece of how I make mead and, and the method that I use. And it allows what I call a gallon a week for life, if that's what you want to do, in 30 minutes a week. And that includes making a batch, bottling a batch, and racking a batch every week once you get your process going. And I've gotten to where I did that for like three or four months in a row, and then I kind of fell off the wagon and stopped making mead for a while. But it's really, really easy to do. So now that I've given you the overall method, let me kind of go through it like what you're actually doing through that method. So we take our one-gallon container. We're going to add three pounds of honey to it. But if we're going to do any kind of adjunct, and I'll give you some of my favorites in a moment, I put them in there first. Okay, so if I'm going to use apricots, it's a great thing. I'll figure out how much apricot I want to use to the gallon. I'll cut my apricots up, get them out of the pit. And I put them in the bottom of the container. I'm going to take a electric tea kettle, and I'm going to put that on right at the beginning and turn that on. And I, I, I used to like worry about how hot the water got. I don't even worry anymore. I said we wouldn't boil the honey. We're going to boil the water. We're going to make one tea kettle full of water. We're going to have more water than we need, and we're only going to use as much as we need. That water is going to come to a boil while I cut up the apricots, put them inside the, uh, the bottle. Once those apricots are in the bottle... I'm going to pour enough water in that bottle to cover the apricots. Don't worry about setting pectin and getting haze. It's not going to happen. As soon as they hit those apricots, the temperature of that water is going to start going down. Once they're covered, I'm going to put the lid on the bottle. Save a lid that you have not affixed an airlock to as a, spare, a lid for doing the shaking and what have you. You don't want to put your hand over a thing with scalding hot water in it. 
put the lid on it, give it a shake, make sure all of the fruit, adjunct, whatever it is, has been thoroughly soaked in the hot water. Now we're going to take the lid off. Now we take our, our five-gallon or five-pound bottle of honey. I pretty much standard on five-pound bottles, but if you don't have that, that's fine. By the way, honey's about three pounds a quart, so you can just pour a quart if that's what you want to do. I'll talk about the honey I use later, but generally I'm using a five-pound bottle of honey. I take the scale, I put it on there because the bottle weighs something, and I don't know which each bottle weighs. And if it says something like 5.15 pounds, well, I know i got to get that bottle down to 2.15 pounds. So I keep adding honey until I'm down to 2.15 pounds. If it's a little over, no problem. Put the honey away. Put the lid on it and start to shake it with the water that's in there with the pasteurized fruit. It's probably not enough. By now, the water in that bottle is significantly down from a boiling temperature. You're not going to ruin your honey. By the way, all those volatile uh, aromas and stuff, since you have the lid on the bottle, they're not going anywhere anyway, and it's going to continue to cool down as you shake it, enough so that it's not going to run off into the ether of nothingness. We're going to open the bottle up. We're going to add some more hot water to it. We're going to put the lid back on. We're going to shake it again very, very vigorously. We want lots of oxygen at this stage. It's going to get our yeast off to a nice start. We'll keep adding water from the kettle until such time as that the honey is fully dissolved. Once the honey is fully incorporated, we can go ahead and add regular old room temperature water. Again, I like to use water out of my Berkey. I would use it out of my tap, but I'm on a well. You may not be and you may not want to because you do have chlorine and chloramine in there. Okay? You should have a water filter in that situation anyway. Just saying. So we're going to go ahead and we're going we're gonna to leave some headspace. Bring it up there, and there's a, we got to wait and measure the temperature until we're 110 degrees and pitch the yeast. Bullshit. I know a lot of you aren't going to, I've never had a freaking batch fail yet. I take my two strains of yeast, I dump them in, I put an airlock on it, I set it aside to ferment. That is all. I, I might, I'll label it. I take a 5x7 index card, and I write down what went in it. Since I always use three pounds of honey anymore... Unless I'm using anything other than my standard honey, I don't even write that down anymore. I'll have one cup of apricots, right? And that's it. I just need to know what it is and the date that I put it in there. And I tape it to the bottle. And I set it wherever my fermentation area is. That's it. Now, this is why I can make a batch of meat in 10 to 15 minutes. Again, I've kind of already described racking. So racking, we've now fermented. It started to clear. It, there's no more real activity. We put the racking cane in. We just go to another fermenter. We put an airlock on it after we top it up and we set it aside. Bottling into the carboy and bottle. Now, what that allows you to do, if you, and I have on video, if you're an MSB member, you can go back to the 2016 workshop videos. And on that video, in less than 30 minutes, I make a batch of persimmon mead. I, I, I bottle a batch of rose mead. And I rack a batch of mead that I don't remember what it was in less than 30 minutes, as a presentation, which if you've ever done even just little YouTube videos, you know when you do something as a presentation, it always is more complicated. It always takes more time. When you're just doing it for your own benefit, it's a lot quicker. And once you get into that rhythm, you can do it. All right? So I have some videos of this as well I'll put in the show notes. I did a thing called Meads of the Week. I only did it for about four or five weeks. But I show you exactly how to do what I just described. Let's talk about some of my favorite flavorings and adjuncts and, and how to use them and why I like them. One is, I've always mentioned, Three Flowers Blend. This is a thing that's kind of taken people by, like, by storm. When people make it, they, they're, they're kind of, they either love it or they hate it. It's what I would call the IPA of meads. 
And it's nowhere near as bitter as an IPA. And I'm not a fan of IPAs, by the way. Uh, so I, I, you know, it could almost be insulting of my own mead, but it's not. But what I mean by it is it's, it's very much not a sweet mead. It has a, a bitterness to it from the heather flowers. And, but, and that bitterness offsets the sweetness of the honey nicely, but it's nowhere near as much as, you know, like a, a full throttle IPA or something like that. And it ages incredibly well. It also finishes incredibly fast. I don't know what it is about the three different flowers or if it's just one of them or what have you, but I've even taken to like using a tablespoon of the three flowers blend in a mead that has nothing to do with three flowers blend just as an accelerant for finishing off the fermentation. And it is made with one part elderflower, one part chamomile flower, um, and one part heather flower. And it's got to be heather flowers. Again, I usually get those from mountain rose herbs, especially the heather flowers. Uh, after I do an episode like this, sometimes it's hard to get them for a while. And it's a, a fairly large amount to the gallon, three quarters of a cup, not packed, per gallon. And that goes into the fermenter first, the hot water goes on top of it, and the rest of it goes the way I said, three pounds of honey to the gallon. It's What I like about it is I've never had anything like it at all from anybody else ever. I'm, I'm actually surprised at this point that no commercial meadery has started to make a product using it, not one that I know of yet, because I know it's, it's made its way around the circuit. People tend to love it. And I'll tell you the other thing I love about it. People will make some and bring it to me to taste it, and it tastes exactly like mine. It's repeatable, which is unusual in the words of the world of me. Now, if we use very different honeys, if we use something like a buckwheat honey, it's a very strong honey, you're going to get a very different result. But that background flavor is the same. So I love that apricot meat. It's one of like the most wonderful things on the planet. And I'll use about two cups of sliced apricots. And I, again, I, I make meat like I cook. I, I look at it, you know, and go, ah, that'll work. And, and when I do fruit meads, I cut it up, I put it in the bottle, I throw the hot water on it. I don't grind it. I don't do jaggedly crap with it. Why make this hard? It doesn't have to be. My goal in this has been, if I can, it, it, it's Masanobo Fukuoka, right, uh, for, for farming. If I can eliminate something, I'm going to eliminate it. What can I not do? And I'm really going to go to heresy for some of you that have never heard this before as we get to the end today. But apricots, just fantastic. Pears. Uh, I grow, you know, standard pears. I guess you call them an Asian pears. Asian pears and ginger make some of the most amazing mead that you can. The one year that I did a big mead tasting for the workshop, I did two meads on the same day. Using the same pears for the same tree. And just to be completely anal, each pear got cut in half. And half went to one batch and half went to the other until I had like two cups of pears. I used ginger from the same root. I used the same yeast and I used my two yeasts and I put half of each packet in each gallon. Okay? <laughs> the only difference was the honey. One was made with a clover honey uh, and one was made with a wildflower honey. And we had people taste it side by side. And people were kind of blown away at the difference, but everybody loved both of them. And a ginger and pear works really good. Mulberry. I make mulberry mead pretty much because there's mulberries growing everywhere on my property. And it's a really easy thing to do. And it's, it's very, mulberry and blackberry meads are very similar, but I get a lot less blackberries, so I tend to make a lot of mulberry mead. And for mulberry mead, I use, again, about two cups. Probably, no, with mulberry, I probably use about four cups. I have a, a Pyrex, um, 
measuring cups, four cups. Usually I take a whole th one of those and kind of just force them in. By the way, um, a, uh, a, a jar, uh, a canning funnel, works pretty good with the apple juice things, with things like uh, mulberries and stuff like that, uh, instead of sitting there one at a time fumbling them in. Don't work with liquids because it's a little too big. It goes on the outside of the lip, but with mulberries it works really, really well. Uh, mulberries work great. Elderberries work great. Elderberry meat is very medicinal meat, and the meat can be medicinal, and I'm not playing any games with that. Um, and I'll tell you, if you have a source of elderberries, either cultivated or wild locally, last year I found the best way in the world to pick elderberries without ending with purple hands. Yeah, wearing gloves helps and all, but this is so simple. Go out with like a five-gallon bucket or whatever and just cut the entire cluster of elderberries off. Put it into a bucket, container, what have you, a paper bag. Take it and put it in the freezer and freeze them. Pull them out when they're completely frozen and take like a bucket and just beat, beat the thing on the side while they're frozen. They just fall off. And they're so frozen anyway, you can hit them with your hands and knock them off. So knock them all off, then pour them into a bag, throw them back in the freezer until you're ready to use them. By the way, freezing fruit before you make a mead is a good thing. It causes the cells to rupture, and it helps release a lot more flavor into the must. So um, mulberry, elderberry. One of the ones that was a real surprise to me how good it came out was cucumber mint. I was down at uh, Chef Tim Love's restaurant, a Lonesome Dove in Fort Worth, about the same time this all started, and they did a margarita, and I always try somebody's margarita if it's a little bit different, and it's a margarita done with cucumber and jalapeno. And I tasted that and went, wow, that's, that's pretty fantastic. And it I got me to thinking about, I was really making a lot of meads at the time, about doing a, a, a mead that way, and I, I'm not really a fan of hot pepper meads. They're okay, but I mean, there's just something like, when I'm drinking a... Uh, uh, something like a mead, I'm not looking for my lips to burn. A spice like a ginger or cinnamon, okay, but a hot pepper, you, if you want to do it, go for it. Not my thing, though. So I was like, well, what would pair well with cucumber? Well, mint. Cucumber, mint, water. So I just took like a handful of fresh mint, shoved it in there, peeled a cucumber, cut it up, threw a cucumber in the one gallon, looked at it and said, you know, two cucumbers would probably work better, give it a little more flavor. So I did a second cucumber, Poured the hot water over the mint and the cucumber, gave it a good shake, made sure it was pasteurized, added the honey, shook it up. It was, and what was awesome about it is you'd give it to somebody, you'd go, what is that? And they'd go, that's mint, and there's something else there. It's good, but I just can't figure out what it is. But when you went, it's cucumber, they'd go, It is cucumber, and it was a really cool mead to make. It's one of my, probably my top ten meads. Next next adjunct I love by itself or with other things is ginger. Ginger pear is good. Ginger apple's good. Uh, I've done orange and ginger. When I do orange, I usually use a lot of the um, the zest. So I use the microplane zester and a lot of zest and a little bit of juice. Meyer lemon is good. Meyer lemon's kind of fantastic. You don't want to go too much with citrus. Um, as you're learning your, your craft, this is another good thing about one-gallon batches. You've only made a gallon. So you can make another gallon next week and use more or less and make the same ingredient. And they're going to finish within a week of each other. So you can taste them side by side and go, that was too much citrus, that's just right. Or that's not enough, maybe I need to add more. That type of thing. So that's another reason I like the one-gallon batches. But here's what you have to think about with citrus. 
Very few people that I know would sit down and squeeze lemon juice into a glass and drink pure lemon juice out of it. It's too tart. Well, when we're making mead, we're converting sugar into alcohol, which means sugar's gone. Which means if we do something like orange, even though orange is sweet, we end up with far more of the tartness of a lemon in the final end product. And that's that's important, I think, to understand because you can go overboard with things like lemon and what have you, and you make a mead you really don't want. But orange and ginger is fantastic. And I would use about uh, the juice of one orange and the zest of one orange to a gallon. And then ginger I would use, you know, probably three or four pieces that are about, you know, a couple inches long and maybe a quarter inch squared cut. Um, I don't peel ginger when I'm going to make a ginger meat. It doesn't seem to matter to me and make any sense. And again, it's going to get pasteurized with the hot water. Uh, autumn olive, I made one batch of autumn olive mead last year because it takes a lot of, you know, you, you need, I think what I did with that, I had a red, like one of those red solo cups, like the 16-ouncers that uh, like kids use at a, a drinking party if they even do that anymore with kegs. Uh, certainly did when I was you pay two bucks, you got your cup, right? Uh, <laughs> I'm old, I know. But uh, I, I filled one of those, and I went like every day out picking autumn olives until it was full. And, and that made a fantastically good meat, enough so that I, I want to do it again this year, and I should have a lot more autumn olive to work with this year. And persimmon. And I did, I did persimmon orange, persimmon orange ginger. That was fantastic. And this is part of why I love small batch mead making. Because you can try something a little crazy. And if it's not any good, well, pfft, let me tell you one of my failures. And I think I could make it really good if I used raw fruit like I do with most everything else. We went to Costco and they had this bottled, cold-pressed watermelon juice. The ingredients were watermelon juice and watermelon rind. That was it. Tasted really good. I'll make a watermelon meat. I'll just use this instead of water. It worked, sort of. I used enough hot water to melt the honey, and then the rest I just poured in the watermelon juice. Well, it didn't get pasteurized. Huh? Well, it, it had some stuff in it that wasn't good, and it tasted like... Bad, stale movie popcorn. Weird. I still think I have a couple bottles of it to mess with people because I made a full batch of it and decided to go ahead and bottle it even though it sucked and thought, well, if you age it, man, I knew it wouldn't. But if you can think of, like, stale popcorn taste, that's... <laughs> that's the only... And like So I'm about to go into all the things that I do that people say not to do uh, and explain them. And so what I want to kind of point out then is I've been making mead for 23 years and I've been doing this way for three years and I've probably made 100 gallons of mead this way at least. I've made 100 gallons if I made a gallon. And in 100 gallons I made one bad batch. And it had nothing to do with any of the things that I'm about to talk about. So please have an open mind with this if you're an experienced mead maker. Um, let's start out with cleaning and sanitation and everybody disagrees with me on this. As a home brewer... I came up in the Charlie Papazian School of Thought. I, my first book on, on making beers and a little bit on meads was The Complete Joy of Home Brewing. Not even the new Complete Joy, The Complete Joy of Home Brewing. And, uh, you know, when you're new to something and you have no knowledge in it all and you get a book, you follow it by the letter. And I could hear my grandmother's words, even though he didn't use these exact words, as he was going through all these procedures, cleanliness is next to godliness. 
and you sanitize this, and you, you and, and this is before the days of things like Star San and stuff like that, which are modern commercial uh, sanitizers. You you know you you do this in boiling water with your beer caps, and you use a certain amount of bleach to a gallon of water for your sanitizing liquid, and you scrub every inch. And and I absolutely was religious about my cleaning and my sanitation. And let me tell you, this means sanitation and sterilization. Sanitation means We, we kill and remove as much of the bad bacterias and bad wild yeast that we can, but we don't get rid of 100% because it's not really practical. Sterilization would be nothing's living is left. Along my path with this small batch meat, I found a book by Jeremy Zimmerman, who's been on the show, called Make Me Like a Viking. And he was talking about wild fermented yeasts and wild fermented meads and how some mead makers will stir mead with their arm and stuff like that. And well, I didn't go to that level. I thought, well, you know, wait a minute. Like until very recent times, no one even understood when they were making alcoholic beverages that these other things could even occur. And the only thing people did was rinse stuff out. What if I rinse with hot water? So again, can I eliminate something like sanitizing? So my Belief now is, if I'm if it's not something that's being thrown away, as soon as I'm done, it gets cleaned. I never give any chance for any residue to build up. And the, the beautiful thing about the one-gallon fermenters, remember I said save a lid? Okay, when we get done and we're cleaning up, and if we have one that's not going to get immediately reused for a secondary, boil half a kettle of water, pour it in there, that's scalding hot water, put the lid on it, shake it up, Take the lid off. Be careful not to burn yourself. It'll build up pressure. Dump it out. Set it upside down. It's clean. It's clean. I promise you, it's clean. When we are ready to use it again, turn the, the tap water on, push the thing over to hot, let the water heat up, fill it up with water, give it a shake, dump it out, make your freaking mead. You're going to dump hot water in there anyway. My racking cane and the little hose and all that, turn the hot water on, rinse it out, take the, 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 the kettle, dump a little hot water down the racking cane, Dump it out, clean it out, make sure no sticky residues in there. It's done. Take the, 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 the siphon hose, turn the hot water on the spigot, grab the spigot like it's a garden hose and force water through it, clean it off, set it to dry. Done. That's it. I don't use any sanitizer at all. Infinity. It's going to be horrible. Wild user. It's only sucked once, and it's because I used cold-pressed watermelon juice without pasteurizing it. Okay? It's not necessary. I know that some of you are yelling at me right now. I'm sorry. I stopped doing it. The quality went nowhere. It's not necessary. So let's not do things that aren't necessary. Always clean. Always rinse with hot water. And create an environment conducive to maximum life of the yeast you put in there on purpose. And they will outnumber and outcompete everything else. Okay? Number one. I... Next thing, or I'm sorry, next thing, pasteurizing your adjuncts. Again, there are people that really worry about this. You can't go above, I think it's 165 degrees, or you'll set the pectin, but you have to be at least this hot for this long. Uh, again, I got to the wall, like, okay, wait a minute. When I dump boiling hot water into something, it's not boiling by the time it gets in there. As soon as you take it off the heat, it, it begins to drop in temperature. So then I have room temperature or frozen fruit in the bottle, and I'm going to cover it with hot water. If that water's hot enough that while it sits there, it can knock down most of what's there. 
and start the extraction process. And then as I add honey and more hot water, the, that, that heat is enough to knock back whatever might be there. That's a no, I don't need any potassium sorbates. I don't need nothing. It's, it's, it's sulfates or whatever. I don't need crap. Hot water, done. Finished. The end. And you know what? Except for the cold-pressed watermelon juice that didn't go through that process, it's never been a problem. So just put hot water on top of the adjuncts. Let that do its thing. Add your honey and continue on. Next, um, I don't use a hydrometer. I have several. I, I make fuel as well as, as need, okay? And I use a hydrometer for that. Why don't I use a hydrometer? Because it doesn't matter. Because it doesn't matter. Your alcohol content, if you're using three pounds of honey to the gallon, no matter what adjuncts you're using, is going to be right about the same amount every time, which, by the way, is going to be, depending on what else goes in it, what type of attenuation you got out of your yeast on this particular run, what actual particular sugar content the honey had at various batches, it's going to be 14 to 16%. Uh, you're not bottling it to sell it, so you don't care. Well, how do I know when it's done? If I don't, when it stops fermenting? Well, it can get stuck fermentation. 100 gallons, one bad batch, one because it stopped fermenting. I, I actually have, I've had one batch of blueberry mead, and I knew when I did it, it wasn't quite ready, but I was in a hurry because we had a workshop coming up, and it it carbonated in the bottle, and when you opened it, it sprayed a little bit, and it was highly carbonated. It was carbonated blueberry mead. Do you think it was bad? And what you can do, if that ever happens to you, bottle your mead. I don't use corks. Right? I don't, so it's easy to open it no matter what. I'm, I'll talk about bottles in a minute. But three or four days after you bottle, open it. If it goes, psst, you, you've got a little bit of residual fermentation going on. Go open your bottle slightly every couple days for a couple weeks. And whatever little bit was in there and kicked off by bottling, it'll stop and you'll have a still mead. Or do it for a couple days and stop and you'll get a nicely sparkling mead if, that's, if you're okay with that. That's it. It's not a big deal. How do you think everybody made this stuff before we had all these you know, microbiology knowledge and stuff, right? Um, but I don't use a hydrometer, and I don't find it necessary. It's an extra step, and it's also, since you're so worried about contaminating things, another opportunity to contaminate the mead. I taste the mead. I smell the mead. I look at the mead. I know when the mead's done. Um, I seldom cold crash, and part of why I seldom cold crash is, one, you, you get such a great, fast finish with small batch. It's not necessary. Uh, number two, it's one of the primary ways you know you're done. When that mead is crystal clear, you're done. If there was any activity, you would see some sort of haze or what have you. However, I've had, uh, you know, every once in a while you get a batch, and it's a little bit stubborn, and it's, it doesn't look, it doesn't have any activity, but it just doesn't want to clear out. Well, then you take the gallon jug and put it in the refrigerator. The reason I don't like cold crashing uh, is a matter of course, as if you do that then you up your chances of not being finished and having some residual fermentation go on inside the bottle. Because you're, you're basically putting the yeast to sleep, but you're not getting rid of it, and there'll still be some in there. Where this works for uh, purposes of, like, you have a bunch of people coming over and you want a gallon of mead to share with a bunch of people, well, you take the same bottles you do fermentation in, and you come out of your secondary into your third fermenter, your tertiary, I guess you'd call it, put the lid on it, throw it in the refrigerator. Just to be safe, open it up the next day. If there's any air in there, it'll vent out and do that a couple days before your party. 
And you can finish a batch of meat in less than 30 days that way because you cold crash it out and it's not going to ferment aggressively because it's in a refrigerator at 36, 38 degrees. So that's like, uh, that's young, young mead that most people would scoff at, but it's still pretty damn good. Uh, I also, I am fine using everyday honey in my favorite, uh, in, in, in my favorite meats. I don't have to have every meat I make be made with the elusive wildflower honey from the peaks of the Alps or something like that. Um, mead is good stuff. And you can make a better mead with a better honey. I'm not saying you can't. But I'm saying if you're the kind of person that wants to experiment with a lot of different varieties of meads and come up with a few signature things, there's nothing wrong with using Dutch Gold Honey that's $4 a pound off of Websterot.com. My bee mentor, Jason, I, he doesn't like honey. Crazy. He you know processes 55-gallon drums of honey by the buttload every year. and uh, But he didn't, never liked honey. And I turned him on to mead. He goes, this is good. So he started making mead. He buys Dutch Gold Honey instead of using his old honey because it's, he, he would prefer to sell his honey for you know $8 to $12 a pound and buy $4 a pound honey. And he's made it with his own honey. And he said, there's a little difference, but not enough for me to care that much. I kind of feel the same way. Now, there are some special honeys that make special meads, and that's a good thing. But by using everyday inexpensive honey, you can get a lot of experience fast, you can make a lot of variety fast, and you can hone in on, oh, I really do like Jack's Three Flowers blend. I'm going to make a special gallon or two or five a year with my special honey. Where if you're always using expensive honey, how much mead can you afford to make? So if you make mead the way I'm talking about, you can drink beautiful, wonderful mead fit for a king, literally, for less than you can buy wine for at the, at the bottle shop. And cheap wine at that. And, and the, is it going to be as elegant if it was periwinkle honey from Ireland? No. But does every single, you know, how many of you people that would say that will turn around and go drink a Coors? Right? I mean, come on. Not everything has to be special. If everything's special, nothing's special. Remember the movie, uh, The Incredibles? When everybody's super, nobody would be super. Well, if everything's special, nothing's special. So I think all meat's special, but it doesn't have to be super special, I guess. Maybe so if, if everything's super special, nothing will be super special. So I use everyday honey. Now, here's a little thing. I was turned on to this Dutch Gold brand of honey. They make clover and orange blossom. Both of those are fantastic. They sell for about four bucks a pound. You can get them at Websterant.com. And the clover, to me, makes a better mead. Love orange blossom honey, but clover has some... Clover honey is really... And first of all, all honey is wildflower honey. Okay? All honey is wildflower honey. Because bees work whatever's available. But when they say orange blossom honey, it's going to be a lot of orange. And the reason for that is because that honey is going to come from bees that were used to pollinate an orange grove. That's how they know it's orange grove honey. Clover honey is generally from when they take bees that are, you know, doing pollination work and they take them and they put them like their summer home. And most of it in the United States is actually made in Wyoming and the Dakotas. And they're just going out and foraging. And they're also probably feeding them sugar syrup, by the way, which is not a best practice, but they're building their hives up for the next round of pollination services. So those bees are out working everything, they just happen to have a lot of clover available, and hence they call it clover honey. Wildflower honey means that they really don't have uh, access in abundance to any single one thing. That could be based on the location or the time of year. Here's what you'll generally notice, though. 
Your orange blossom honey will be extremely light. Your clover honey will be light. Your wildflower honey will be a little bit darker. And your buckwheat honey will be almost molasses-like. Buckwheat honey makes pretty good mead, in my opinion. Some people hate it. But in general, I found if you're going to buy run-of-the-mill honey, that clover honey makes some of the best mead. Wildflower honey, pretty damn good, too. Both of those, and Dutch Gold makes both, and they're both around $4 a pound. Now, I have a link to where you can get the um, Dutch Gold clover honey on uh, the Websterant website. Understand, most people that buy from that place, Websterant, are restaurant owners. So they're buying stuff to make baked goods if when they're buying honey. There's a brand on there called Monarch's Choice. It's cheap. It's about $2.50 a pound versus about $4.10 a pound. You know, if you're buying, let's say, 30 pounds of honey at a time. That's what I buy. I'm going to make a lot of mead. I buy 30 pounds. That makes me make 10 gallons of mead. Okay? I have not tried it. I'm going to try it. I don't know if it's going to be as good as the Dutch Gold. But it's a, a little more than half the price. Just a little more than half the price. One of the comments that made me interested in trying it was that it has a lot of flavor from one of the people that's a restaurant owner. So if you don't want, you know, that, you know... And it, what I got out of it was it's, it, it tastes a little more like wildflower honey than your typical clover honey. To me, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. So I'm going to give it a shot, but I'm not vouching for it. I am vouching for Dutch Gold, wildflower, um, clover, uh, and orange blossom. All three of those are fan-freaking-tastic for making meat and for other uses as well. I like the five-gallon jugs because you get, again, six of them is 30 pounds, 10 gallons of meat. Three pounds comes out of one, you mark, you know it's two pounds left. So now you put all of it in, and you get one pound out of your next one. And you end up with, when you're to the end of your batch, the whole thing goes in, it's an even number, it works. And I go with the three pounds because of some of the loss, you get a good full-bodied meat even with the water addition at the secondary. But again, I don't. if anybody's used Monarch's Choice, let me know. I also did some research on it for you guys, different forums and stuff like that. And I found people going, it sucks, it's garbage, it's crap, yeah, blah, blah. None of those people used it. Um, several people that used it said they liked it. Um, one guy that used it said it's not as good as when he gets from his local apiary. Well, duh. Um, but it was good. So, I mean, I, I think it's one of those things we have to try and find out. Um, next, even though of what I just said about, you know, everyday honey, what I love about being a mead maker and having a small batch method and it being easy to do is being able, when you're on the road, you take a trip somewhere and you find a local honey and buy that honey, bring it home, make a gallon. You buy at least three, three pounds, which means if you buy a quart, that's enough to make a batch, and pick something. You know, like if you love the three flowers blend, do that, or apricot, or ginger apple, or whatever. And always make it the same, but make it with these different honeys from around the country. When I go to Florida uh, this time, I'll be bringing home enough of about probably three or four different honeys to make basically the same mead out of three or four different honeys from the same place. Because there's like sea grape out there, and they have honey in all the local stores, and one is sea grape honey. And it'd be interesting to have an orange blossom honey from the same beekeeper who has his bees in the orange groves as you know, has his bees where they're getting access to the sea grapes and try those side by side. So there's a lot of joy in that. And if you think about like going places and having a souvenir, when you come home with six pounds of honey, you can make two gallons of mead. And since it stores almost infinitely, 
you can lay some of that up for a really long time, and that's like taking a trip back to that place. I've still got honey I need to make into mead from our last trip up into North Carolina and uh, Tennessee. So it, it, it is a fun thing, and I like to use local honeys and whoever you can get it from and what have you. Um, next, I want to talk about airlocks versus balloons. This is another one. About, ah, if you're too cheap to buy an airlock, you don't need to make mead. Just shut up, okay? Um, using balloons, first time I saw it was when Michael Jordan did it. If you're using a one-gallon water bottles with the little lids, a standard party balloon fits right on there, works good, that's fine. It, they'll blow up really, really big, and usually they'll self-vent one way or another. And it's the same reason if you have a helium balloon two days after you bring it home, it sinks. There is some permeability in the wall of the balloon. If it gets really overdone a bit, pull the side out and let it let it de, you know, do its thing a bit. Um, some people that use the balloon method say it helps hold in some of the aromatics. I'm going to tell you where the balloon method comes from. It comes from making wine in prison. And you, obviously, if you were fermenting wine in prison, you wouldn't want the aroma going around the place. I like airlocks because they work. I prefer three-piece airlocks because they're easy to clean. They're about a buck a piece, even if you have 20 batches of meat going at once, which is more than most people ever will. That's 20 bucks in airlocks. It's not that big a deal. Also, since I use the one-gallon apple juice bottles as my fermenters, um, Since I have to modify the lids anyway, it's no big deal to pop a stopper in there and use an airlock. One of the reasons I like the apple juice bottles, not just because I have them in abundance, because I use them for making my cider, is because they are a really rigid, heavy, uh, food-grade plastic. And I have no problem getting five, six uses out of them before I look at one and go, yeah, that's kind of done its deal. And it's basically when I end up with too many of them around, then I start throwing them away. And I throw the oldest ones away first and just bring some new ones in. Um, so that is my preference. But I have no problem with using the balloon method whatsoever. It's up to you what you want to do. And if you do have like a second half that doesn't like odd smells, one of the real advantages is if you're going to be doing this indoors, which probably makes sense because the t fermentation temperatures are really great indoors, um, is you won't have, I don't like that smell. Okay, I don't have that problem, but I know some of you do. So there you go. Uh, bottles for your mead uh, and how I handle sanitation of those. So uh, this is a, you have to sanitize the bottles and you boil the corks and you use this sanitizer, star sand this and bleach that. No, I <laughs> I rinse the bottles out with hot water and then I put mead in them and I put the lid on. That's it. As far as bottles that I use, I love the swing top growler style bottles, both the 12 ounce and the 16 ounce. And I like they, they have a 32 ounce ones of those. Those are great. Uh, I use those more for ciders than I do for meads. My favorite bottle for, for meads at this point is we'll buy bottles of wine and almost all the good wine coming out of New Zealand and South Africa and Australia now comes with a screw top lid. That's, that's what I use. And I just put a label on it over time. I don't, some people, and I have no, no faults. Anybody do it. I have people print out beautiful labels and corks and wraps and everything. And it's like presentation grade. You give somebody as a gift. In the end, you give somebody a bottle of mead. What you're giving them is what's in the bottle. So that's, that's what I do. So like, um, Kim Crawford Sauvignon Blanc is an example of a great dry white wine. And it comes with the metal tops. I'll use them four, five, six times. And again, my rule is, If it's going to be used again, the second that it's been emptied, it gets cleaned. So you take that bottle and you pour that last bit of meat out of it. 
you don't leave it sitting aside. Unless it's a workshop and it's 3 o'clock in the morning and you have the mead circle going, which we do here, and there's three cases of swing top bottles, then they get washed in the morning. Otherwise, that bottle goes straight to the sink. Hot water in it, halfway full, turn it upside down and shake it as the water comes out. Turn it back, fill it halfway up, put the lid on it. Shake it with the lid on it, turn it upside down, shake it as the water goes into the sink. Rinse the lid off, set it upside down on a towel or a dish rack, put the lid right next to it, let it dry out. A couple hours later, pick the bottle up, put the lid on it so it doesn't get lost, and put it wherever you store your bottles. The day you're going to bottle, grab yourself enough bottles to do a gallon, which is about five wine bottles to the gallon, and you're going to get a full gallon if you use my method instead of three-quarters of a gallon or less. Grab your five bottles, bring them downstairs, rinse them out with hot water, rinse the lids out, Clean out your carboy, rack of your carboy, bottle your five bottles, put the lids on them, label them, put them away to age. How long they got to age? How long do you want to wait? Honestly, a lot of these meats taste really good the day they go in the bottle. And what will usually happen with me is I'll end up with like a little half a pint or something like that extra that doesn't fit in the bottles. I'll put that in a little like jelly jar, put the lid on it, and I'll label it and I put that in a refrigerator. You know, and I, you know, then that's 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 my reward for being a good boy and bottling when I was supposed to, and I'll have it that night, and I'll I'll kind of you know maybe maybe make some notes about it or whatever, and compare that to when I drink it after it's been in the bottle for you know a month or two. Month or two is plenty of time to age in a bottle, by the way. It really is. However, it does get better with age. The nice thing by making a batch a week for a while is you can have some some old and some new all at the same time. You can try that mead that you really wanted to know how it came out. You can make some notes about it. You can leave the other four bottles go. Because you've always got something to drink when you want to have some mead. And it's, it's very economical to do this way because it spreads your expense out. Um, now, why do those who say I'm wrong, why are they actually right? Sort of. Well, number one is because they're basing their information on science. And science says that you know, that you want to sanitize to get the best result. They're basing their information on generalized industry knowledge that people have gained over the years as a best practice. Almost every book on the subject says to do what they say. Their method works. It works. If you do the things they say, you will never have a batch of mead get infected or go off on you. So, I mean, but the reason I say sort of is, Compare it, like I mentioned Masanobu Fukuoka, uh, who left us quite a few years ago now, but his method of farming was completely counter to what everybody in mainstream agriculture said that you were supposed to do. And his entire approach was, if I can eliminate something, I eliminate. I don't look at my farm and say, what else can I do? I look at my farm and say, what else can I not do? And his production per acre exceeded commercial, organic, it's about everything. Because he understood how to embrace the natural systems. And so since what he did worked really well, when uh, someone else said, that's wrong because the, and it was a different department, but let's say it had been in the United States, the USDA says you're opposed to do this and this and this and this and this, and I did that and my farm is productive. They're correct. The, the general guidelines, the consensus of the industry is this is what you're supposed to do. And in their judgment, their results are good. So they're right. 
But what I actually feel like is my method, and I and I, I do feel comfortable at this point calling it my method with all of the things that I've you know added to it, changed and eliminated, etc. Is that I believe it is the best method for the most people. So what would make the best method for the most people? Number one, it would be easy. Number two, it would be inexpensive. Number three, it would produce consistently a good result. Uh, and number four, it would be something the person could approach within a, just a few times of doing it with confidence. Number five, it would be something that's so affordable per time you do it that over, let's say, 60 days, a person could do it six to eight times. See, here's the thing. You're going to do five-gallon batch. Okay. So you're going to use 30 pounds of honey. Okay. That's, uh, that's not cheap, is it? Even using our Dutch gold uh, from Webster on store, uh, it's 102 bucks. So how many times a year are you going to do that? But if we can make 10 batches out of that $102, that's $10 a batch. You now have a $10 a week hobby that produces five great quality bottles of mead a week once you get into this you get that first batch done and every week a batch is finishing it right every week ten dollars produces five bottles of mead and let's say you got a little bit in Fermax and a little bit in yeast and maybe you're buying your water so let's say fit and you've got some adjunct in there let's say it's 20 let's double it it ain't because you're probably using a lot of stuff that you get off your own property or you get by foraging or what have you so let's say it's twenty dollars a week to make five bottles of mead. The cheapest decent mead I've ever seen in my life is $20 a bottle. That's $100 worth of mead for $20. But what's more important to me is you're getting the frequency where you're mastering your craft. And you're getting the the opportunity to say, I, gee, I wonder what kiwi mead would be like. Oh, look, they have kiwis on sale at Publix this week. And you grab yourself six kiwis, you bring them home, peel them, throw them in there, and do it. And that's the thing. That's why I think it's the best one. Because there's no one that decides, I'd like to do this, that then feels like, I, I, I need to go to the homebrew store, and I need a glass fermenter, and I need this special stuff. And I, I do recommend you use, like, Firmax yeast nutrient, and you got to get yeast. Those are your two things that are kind of not just there. But I'll tell you what, you can use a little bit of lemon juice, just like a, a, a single quarter of lemon juice. And that helps a lot with your nutrient there. Use a couple raisins for nutrient. Um, and, and then as far as yeast, if you want to, you can go to the store and get Flashman's bread yeast. It will have a tolerance up to about 14 to 16%, which is plenty. Your mead come out might a little bit more uh, sweet. So you do have these like two specialty products you should get. And I think you will be happier if you do, which is why I recommend them. But you know you can buy uh, two, two ten packs, one of the, the Pasteur Blanc and one of the Cuvée. And you can use a half a packet per batch easily because each packet's enough for uh, five gallons. So that those those ten packets of yeast could make you twenty batches of, of mead. So I it, again, it's, it's economical, it's affordable, it gives you the repetition, it gives you the opportunity to experiment. It doesn't require a lot of pain in the ass equipment. It doesn't require a special burner. Uh, again, a tea kettle, I recommend. You can take a pot of water and boil a pot of water. I just have a tea kettle. I recommend you have one. It does. It's, it's just great. You fill up a water, hit the button, and you clear, click off. You, if you want your water to be a little bit cooler, 
15, 20 minutes before you're actually going to start making your mead, throw your electric tea kettle full of water on, click it on. It'll take about five minutes to boil. That means that water's going to sit there for 10 minutes before you even start. If, you're, if, you, if you do what I do with your electric kettle, you don't even have to fill it. Because <laughs> this is what I do with my electric kettle. I'm going to boil water in it. I'm not worried about going bad. Water doesn't go bad anyway, unless there's something in it. So when I, when I empty my kettle out, I rinse it out, and I fill it up, and I put it back on the base. So when I need to heat water up, all I have to do is flip it on. I mean, I, and I have a Keurig now that does hot water on demand, so I could actually use my Keurig to do this. But, yeah, I'm not going to tell you to go buy a Keurig. But I will tell you, an electric kettle pays for itself in a lot of ways. Best way in the world to make a hard-boiled egg, throw, throw four eggs in the bottom of your electric kettle, cover them with water, turn it on. When it clicks off... Wait six minutes, dump the water out. There's your boiled eggs. I talked about steaming them yesterday. That's better, but that works too. So there's a lot of things you can do with electric kettle. I, I just think that when you take away all this, well, you need this kind of sanitizer. And I think there's part of that issue to me isn't just that you need it. It's that it makes it seem more complicated. Because it's not complicated to get a little bit of star sand and mix up a gallon of sanitizing solution and, and clean everything with it. It's not hard. And if it was necessary, I'd do it, and I'd recommend it, but it's not. And what it does is it puts in people's minds, like, it's, it's really easy to mess this up. And, and I think the more you can eliminate fear, the more you can encourage participation. And again, I'm going to go back to this. For those of you that doubt me, if it works, why would you add steps? I, I, I'm telling you, I, when I make mead, someone comes over, I pour them a glass, it's crystal clear, it's golden, wonderful nectar of the gods. No one ever goes, that sucks. There are people that like sweet shit, and they don't, they don't prefer what I'm pouring them because it's dry. Well, they wouldn't like a good dry Chardonnay either then, would they? So that's not my methodology. And where was all of this fussiness just 100 years ago, let alone 200 years ago? Do you think our founders, when they were making cider, were worrying about star sand solution or whatever? No. So... Again, I know that I get a little bit on my pulpit with this, but it's because I know I'm going to get resistance to it. I'm heading off of the pass. And, and I would just say this to you. Try it. What, what would it hurt for you to spend $10 on, on three pounds of honey? Clover honey from Costco makes pretty good mead too, by the way, uh, whatever brand they have. I'm not sure what they call it now, but I've used it too. Three pounds of honey and give it a shot. Make it the way I say and see what happens. And, and by the way, I think it'd be a good idea for just about anybody to make a straight mead. Honey, yeast nutrient, yeast, water, no adjuncts. Create a base mead so that when you do add a, a, a ginger or when you do add three flowers, by the way, you can taste it side by side start to really understand the underlying characteristic of the mead. But I'll break my own rule all the time. I haven't made a, a straight mead in a long time. When I do make a straight mead, it's usually one of those where I've traveled and I've got, you know, uh, sourwood honey from Tennessee. Then I might make a straight mead out of that just so I can say this is a straight sourwood mead and let people try it. Give it a shot, guys. And if you have any questions, let me know. Uh, I will do all I can to answer your questions on a follow-up show because uh, I'm sure this will catch. If you had any, like, what the hell is he talking about when I talk about making it, just take a look at the playlist I have for Meads of the Week. The very first video, I make a batch of mead. It's it, I've, I've done it things a little differently at this point. But the basic con is so simple. It's so flippin' simple. Um, if you if you want to experience the joy of mead, 
Get yourself a bottle of water, three pounds of honey, and go to town and make yourself some. With that, we've wrapped up the show today. Uh, the Amazon item of the day is the racking cane that I mentioned, so I won't really go deep into that other than to say that whenever you want to support this show, the easy way to do it is go to tspaz.com when you're going to shop online. Check out my reviews, but anytime you go to tspaz.com before you shop online, you help support the survival podcast and the work that we do. That brings us to our song of the day. Uh, our song of the day is by Bob Seger. And, uh, man, I love some old Bob Seger. One of my absolute favorite, and I mean absolute favorite, uh, Pandora stations I've created over the years was actually built on Bob Seger. And this song is called The Sea Inside. And it's, you know, when I saw Bob Seger on, uh, on John Adams' list, I was like, you know, it's be like still the same or, or something like that or, uh, you know, like a rock or something like that, which was uh, a, a great song until the advertising industry got a hold of it. But um, this is actually from 2017, and it's it's uh, from an album called I Knew You When. And here's what Bob had to, to, to say about it. Sometimes you just got to get away and go deep inside when figuring out what you're trying to say, he told USA Today. The way I do it is I get on a motorcycle and I just go for a couple of days, Seeger added. That's the imagery I feel, being out there on the open road when you just need to be alone and say, okay, here's where I am now. What do I want to, where do I want to go? And I think that's, that's a thing that I've talked about over the years. Like when I'm talking about shows about lifestyle design and all, one of the things I've said is, you know, it might make, a sense, make sense for you to get away for a week alone and don't listen to the news and don't check in on Facebook and just go be somewhere that you like being. Go fishing or go sit in the woods or go get a cabin somewhere and read books or whatever and just rediscover who you are and, and, and go within. So I really like that. I'll tell you what I like about this song, though. When I first heard it, I was like, I wonder if Bob Seger's lost the step at all in his voice. Because he has a, just, I love that old Seger stuff uh, from Bob Seger and the Silver Bullet Man, right? And uh, when, I, when I first heard the opening line, I went, yeah. He's lost a step or two. Still very good, but he's definitely, you know, you can tell that time takes away from us. That's part of what makes life worth living is we have a, a peak, and then we do have to accept the fact that some things we decline in our ability to do over time. And when I, when I heard that, I found a new respect for Bob Seger because there's so many musicians that when you're talking about recording an album in a studio, Well, a little fiddling with this and a little fiddling with that, and you can sound just like your old self. You don't have to let your audience, your fans, the people know that you've started to have maybe not quite as quite as golden a voice as you used to. He didn't do that. This is who I am. This is who I am. And that might be from uh, looking within and figuring out where he wanted to go. So that's cool. It's a great message for today. I hope you enjoyed today's show. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another, uh, another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.